0: the Bible reading comes from Mark 9, 2 to 13 today and is found on page 1,000 of your pew Bibles. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became, became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him.
1: Leadership's a pretty big thing in our day and age. There are endless conferences that you can go to, seminars and training events, all, de- all designed to improve your leadership skills. Uh, I had a quick look on Amazon. Amazon's an online website where you can buy all kinds of stuff, but specifically buy books. So I typed in, leadership in business. And it came up with more than 48,000 books on leadership in business, just on that specific topic. Now, I'm sure that a lot of that stuff is probably going to be very helpful. But what worries me is that a lot of that leadership thinking kind of ends up making its way into the church. Got onto the Koorong website, biggest Christian bookseller in Australia, and I typed in Leadership. And we came up with more than 2,000 top books on the topic of leadership. Um, Some of them, I'm sure, are trying to give us biblical ideas of leadership, but many of them are just rehashing kind of lots of old leadership stuff that's been in the business world for a long time and then trying to pass it off as being Christian Uh, let me give you a couple of quotes a few gems from uh, a a pastor a former senior pastor of a church who's now taken up writing leadership books here are a few of his classic lines anyone can steer the ship but it takes a leader to plot the course you can't win without good athletes but you can lose with them not even sure I understand what that means that one (laughs) Great leaders gain authority by giving it away. It's not the size of the project but the size of the leader that counts. Now, I'm struggling to see how any of those could even be close to being biblical ideas on leadership. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that all of these things are completely wrong. I'm sure that there's things in there that will be helpful I'm just not sure why we're passing them off as being biblical models of leadership. Now, it's probably going to come as no surprise, but the ideas that Jesus has about leadership are somewhat radical and probably don't fit the leadership ideas that you'll hear at at plenty of the conferences today. But it's not surprising that what Jesus says about leadership is a little on the radical side because everything else that he said about his kingdom is a little bit on the radical side as well. The main focus of this section we're looking at today, Mark chapter 9 and 10, is leadership. But it kind of looks at it from two different angles. Uh, What type of leaders Jesus thinks we ought to be, but also what it means to follow Jesus as our leader. But before we start, we've got right at the beginning, the passage that Tracy read for us, a mountaintop experience. One more clear insight into who Jesus is and why he is the one that you need to follow. Now chapter 8, if you remember, finished off with Peter recognising that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour that God has sent into the world. He's only got it partly right, he doesn't understand what the Messiah has come to do, but at least he's got to the point of recognising who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah But then we get to the beginning of chapter 9 and Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, James and John, only those three, to the top of what Mark calls a high mountain. He's obviously wanting to stress something and it'll become a little obvious later on what it is that he wants to stress. They are on top of this high mountain and Mark tells us that Jesus is suddenly transformed. Now the word that gets used there is the word that we have in English, metamorphosis. That's what's actually happened. He's changed into something else. And Mark doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. He just says that Jesus was this brilliant white. And as they stood there, two other men, and it became obvious who they were, two other men appeared and they are standing and talking with Jesus and it's Moses and Elijah. Now I'm sure you probably had this experience where you get to meet someone famous, or maybe you've seen others have this experience, you get to meet someone famous or important, and rather than saying something sensible when you meet them, you just come out with drivel, you come out, you come out with something really stupid and embarrassing. Well it kind of comes as no surprise that Peter is that person in this equation. Here he is up on top of the mountain, Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah and Mark says that he was either so, so excited or so frightened by what happened that he came out with this. He suggests a sleepover. He says why don't we stay up here, how about we get some tents, we'll pitch some tents and we'll stay up here for a while. Now what's the significance of all of this? What's the point of Jesus appearing with these people? And why is it Moses and Elijah that he's talking to up on top of the mountain? Why not Abraham and King David? They'd probably be two more significant leaders from Israel's history. Why not Joshua and Daniel? Why is it Moses and Elijah that he's meeting with? Some people have suggested that it's Moses and Elijah because it's the law and the prophets. Moses representing the law and, and Elijah representing the prophets. But I think the answer is actually a whole lot more simple than that. What do these two men have in common? Well, one thing that they most certainly have in common that, is that in the pages of the Old Testament, they both met God and talked with God on top of a mountain. For Moses, it was during the exile when they came out and were in the wilderness. Moses went on top of the mountain to talk with God, Exodus chapter 24. But Elijah has the same experience. He also meets God and talks with God on top of a mountain in 1 Kings chapter 19. And now they're doing it again. God, Jesus, has taken them up on top of the mountain and he is talking with Moses and Elijah. Now, this doesn't happen for Moses and Elijah's benefit and it certainly doesn't happen for Jesus' benefit. This happens for the benefit of the disciples and, dare I say, it happens for our benefit as well. See, just in case you're still wondering who Jesus is, just to make sure that we're totally clear and all on the same page, Jesus is God. And by way of added confirmation we get the voice from heaven where God the Father speaks, verse number 7, chapter 9, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them and a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. This is God's son coming to the world. This is God. And that's why we're to follow him. That's why we're to trust him. That's why we are to listen To him. Now this recognition of who Jesus is in chapter 8 and at the beginning of chapter 9 forms a bit of a turning point in Mark's gospel. In the the structure of Mark all the way up to chapter 8 people have been saying who is this guy that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this guy who teaches with such authority? Who is this guy who can feed 5,000 people with just a few loaves of of bread and fish? See, but the focus of the gospel now changes. Once we've realised who he is, Jesus spends more time specifically talking with his disciples and less time talking with the crowds. Now that they understand who he is, he can begin to explain to them what it is that he's come to do. I mean, it's radical enough to understand who he is but it is completely radical when he starts talking about what it is that he's come to do. So, and Jesus wants to say that he has come to die on the cross. He says it in chapter 8, he says it in chapter 9, he says it in chapter 10. He is trying to get the disciples to understand that he is dying on the cross and that's part of the plan. But he also wants to say that following him will not be easy. There will be temptations to give up. There will be things that will stand in the way of you being less than serious about following Jesus. And there's some of the issues that he talks about in this section. Can you go to chapter 9 and find verse number 43? Jesus is talking about those things that will cause you to sin, things that may make you stumble in your relationship with God, things that are going to hinder you from being serious about following Jesus. And he suggests a fairly radical step in that event. Chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than to have two eyes and be be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now there have been those throughout church history who have taken Jesus rather literally on this point. This isn't to be taken literally. This is what we call hyperbole. Jesus is wanting to emphasize the seriousness of following him and the serious action that you may need to take if you are going to follow him. See what he's saying is that it's a radical choice to follow Jesus and it's going to continue to involve radical choices throughout your life. Not just one radical choice to accept him as Lord and Saviour but ongoing radical choices will need to be made. He's not literally saying that it's our eyes and our hands or our feet that are the problem. That's not what we need to get rid of. But there will be other things that do stand in the way that hinder us in our relationship. Jump ahead to chapter 10, find verse number 17. We meet a real life example of someone who needs to make a radical choice. It's a rich man who comes to Jesus and he wants to know what he must do to inherit eternal life. What would you say if he came to you and said, what have I got to do to inherit eternal life? I'm guessing you'd answer something like, place your trust in Jesus. Acknowledge that you're sinful, accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. Follow Jesus. So what does Jesus say to this man? Well, Jesus actually knows this man. I don't know if he's ever met him before, but he knows this man. He knows what's going on in his life and in his heart and he quizzes him, I think not so much for the man's benefit or even for Jesus' benefit, but for the benefit of everybody else in the crowd, to see that this is a good, honest man who's tried hard to do what God requires him to do. He asked the man about his, about his obedience to the commandments And the man says that he's obeyed the commandment since he was a child. So Jesus says to him, and it's verse number 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. He's not saying this to make life difficult for this man. He's saying this because he really likes this guy. He feels compassion for this man. One thing you lack, Jesus says, go and sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Wow, what a bombshell. Bet the rich man didn't see that one coming. I'm guessing if Jesus had said, tell you what, give away 20% of of all that you have and then come and follow me, he would have said, done, let's get on with it. If Jesus had said, I need you to go and pray 10 times a day, he would have said, okay, If Jesus had said, I need you to go to the synagogue every morning, he would have said, not a problem. But Jesus has stunned this man and his own disciples, I want to say, with what he's just said. Now we need to be clear, this is the only time in the pages of the New Testament that Jesus makes this demand of anyone. It's a specific instruction for a specific person. Uh, Jesus doesn't say everyone's welcome to enter the kingdom so long as you sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's not what Jesus says. But he knows what it will be in this man's life that will hinder him from following Jesus. Because look at what it says, verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. Verse 22, At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He went away sad because he valued his money more than eternal life. He went away sad because he wanted to hang on to his money rather than know what it is to be forgiven. He valued his money above Jesus. Now, as I said, selling everything is not a prerequisite for becoming a Christian. But when you read a passage like this, it really should give you pause, shouldn't it? I mean, you really should stop and have a think. If Jesus said that to me, would I be willing to do that? Would you be willing to follow Jesus if it meant parting with everything that you have? Because see, if he is God in the flesh, if he is the one who can give salvation and life, if he is the one who can bring us into friendship with God, then surely you would, wouldn't you? But Jesus also wants to show that his kingdom has radically different values to the ones in the world that we live in. I don't have terribly many memories from primary school, got a couple from when I got into trouble, but mainly the thing that I remember most clearly, and this might sound really stupid to you, is lining up. Do you remember that? I don't even know if they really do that anymore, but being in in the line, you know, waiting to go into the classroom or standing in the corridor waiting to move into the classroom. And do you remember how important it was to be at the front of the line? That was the privileged position. And if if the teacher wanted to reward you for good work or good behaviour, you'd be moved to the front of the line. And the worst thing that could possibly happen to you is to be sent to the end of the line. Being at the front of the line is that privileged position and moving to the end was a terrible thing. There was nothing worse than being punished by being sent to the end of the line. That's funny though because that first and last thing, well that kind of seems to hang on to adulthood, doesn't it? Do we place a high value on being first, on being seen as being important, uh, having people respect us, being in charge, being at the front of the line? We have two episodes here in Mark's Gospel where the disciples are demonstrating that they want to be at the front of the line. Mark chapter 9, verse 33 is the first one. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, that is Jesus, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. And we're not talking about Don Bradman or Sachin Tendulkar here. They're arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Maybe it's because Peter, James and John had been up on the mountain and seen Jesus transfigured and saw Moses and Elijah and now they thought they were more important. Maybe that's what it was. But they're arguing amongst themselves about who's the most important, who's the front of the line. And then chapter 10, verse number 35, we find an even more bold statement from these guys. Jesus has just been talking about the fact that he is going to die on the cross and then we have this episode, verse 35, then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. pretty remarkable request, isn't it? Jesus explains to them that those places are already taken and I think he's referring to the two who will be crucified on either side of him. But the response from Jesus in both instances is uh, to explain a kingdom principle that they really don't understand. Chapter 9, verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve to him and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, and the servant of all. And then in chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom doesn't come from being in charge. It doesn't come from being the boss. It doesn't come from being first in line. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is about being a servant. It's about modelling what Jesus has done. Jesus, the one who came from heaven, the one who emptied himself and took on the very nature of a servant, who came to this world to serve us, not to be served by us. He washed his disciples' feet. He didn't come for his benefit. He came for our benefit. If you understand the kingdom that you're a part of, then you'll know that you need to look more like Jesus. If you want to understand what it means to follow Jesus, then look at how Jesus lived. If you want to understand about discipleship, how you should live in that kingdom, then look to Jesus. It's not about trying to make yourself more important. It's not about position and power. It's not about being first in line. It's not about having others serve you. It's about being the last in line and about being willing to serve others. Now there's a whole lot in those two chapters that we've really just kind of skimmed over but the two practical things that jump out at me are that idea of things that will hinder you from following Jesus in his leadership, things that will hinder you from following him And the second thing is having that attitude of service. Jesus said that following him, there will be those things that will prevent you from following him. What do you think those things are in your life? What do you think the the biggest hindrances are for you to being serious about Jesus, about following him closely and carefully? Do you think there are things that prevent you from being more faithful to Jesus? And if you can identify them... What are you ready to do to change those things? I mean, Jesus suggested some pretty radical action, didn't he? Cut your hand off, cut your foot off, pluck your eye out. Maybe there are priorities that you need to rethink. Maybe there are attitudes that you need to change. Maybe there are habits, lifestyles that you have that perhaps are standing in the way of you being serious about following Jesus. I mean, there can be no greater priority in your life than following Jesus. So you need to get rid of those things that are hindering you, those things that are slowing you down. But Jesus also wants us to understand what greatness is like in his kingdom and it's not about position or power. It's not about being at the front of the line. It's about being like Jesus. It's about being a servant. It's not thinking of yourself as someone who needs to be served by others, but thinking about how you can serve others. So, how are you doing that within the life of this church? What are the things that you're doing as part of your service? And how can you improve your service? Now, the list of things that you could write at this point would be endless. Let me give you a couple. Maybe it's something as simple as speaking to someone that you don't know at morning tea this morning. Maybe there's someone in our church who needs a visit. Maybe there's a ministry in our church that you can help out with music, morning tea, kids church, music and playtime. Maybe it's getting to Bible study this week. Now that may not sound like serving but if you want to be a servant to others then you actually do need to meet with them and you do need to find out what's going on in their lives and Bible study is going to be a great place to do that. Maybe you can serve by supporting a missionary financially. Maybe you can serve by praying regularly for one of the missionaries that's connected to our church. Email them and ask them, what sorts of things can I be praying for you this week? I'm sure they wouldn't think that that was an imposition. Pretty sure they'd be pleased that you were praying for them. Maybe you could sponsor a child through a Christian organisation like Compassion. Maybe that could be a way that you could serve. Maybe it's driving someone to a doctor's appointment or to a hospital visit. I mean, the list could go on and on, couldn't it? In terms of thinking about how you serve others within the life of this church. Not wait to be served by them, but how you serve others here in this church. There are countless opportunities for us to be able to serve and to seek to follow the example that Jesus has set for us. We pray with me. Our Father, they are words that sound quite surprising to us, that if we want to be great in the kingdom, then we need to be the servant of all. But we've seen the perfect example in your son, Jesus, the one who is God, the one who came into this world, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, we pray that as we go out this week that we will have that model in our heads that we will seek to follow Jesus by serving those around us. We pray, Father, that his example will be seen in our actions and that people might understand more of who Jesus is by the way that we live. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.